Hey, hello and welcome friends all around the world. Welcome to our SBT Sutra Studies class. My name is Venerable Tarpa and I will be conducting this fine teaching today. Uh, but before we begin, let's take a moment as usual to appreciate our very handsome and wise community gathered here today. Today I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing the present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember, as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds excuse me, transcending our shared human limitations to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet and to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. Again, welcome to our SBT Sutra Study class, which we have every Saturday. We are currently examining the Dharmapada, which is uh, probably the most famous Buddhist text in the world. I believe they claim it to be the first Buddhist text ever be translated. Uh, today we're going to be covering chapter 19, entitled The Just. And so with that said, I'm going to put this up on our screen. And we're just going to read through some of these verses and talk about them. If anybody has any comments or questions, and I can't necessarily see everybody, you can uh, post simple questions in the chat. Or if it's more complicated, I'd rather have just hear from you. And you can just interrupt me, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, so we have... Uh, we have three different versions of this text that we're reading from. We're going to start now with Gaden Chappelle's text. Uh, and um, Darcy, would you like to start with this? Hey, how about we? How about this one? There's quite a few in the first section. How about we read these two at a time? So Darcy, 256 okay. and 257. Sure. He who dispenses justice in an arbitrary manner could never be considered one who abides by the law. One who clearly ascertains both right and wrong is the one who is held wise. The wise are never arbitrary when leading others into harmony with the truth. Wise, they are guarded by truth, for they act in accord with the Dharma. Oh, that was wonderful. Susan, Susan, would you like to, or Susan, would you like to read 256 and 257? Not by passing arbitrary judgment does a man become just. A wise man is he who investigates both right and wrong. He who does not judge others arbitrarily, but passes judgment impartially according to the truth. That sagacious man is a guardian of law and is called just sagacious good job on that one neil would you like to read just this first one here 256 one is not just who judges a case hastily a wise person considers both what is and isn't right guiding others without force impartially and in accord with the dharma one is called a guardian of the dharma intelligent and just oh thank you readers you all did such a great job um you know each uh, each chapter we go through it seems like different authors stand out sometimes at the beginning i thought gaden chappelle's were, were all so brilliant this one i think gil fransdale really uh did a beautiful job in this chapter and i think uh he has the clearest translation out of the bunch um and they say that when the Buddha started teaching, one of the things that was most important to him was to clarify 
right and wrong for people. And according in the Buddha's language, to know what's to be abandoned and what's to be cultivated, right? The other way around, to know what's to be cultivated and what's to be abandoned. This was a, a huge thing to the Buddha. The Buddha believed that people didn't really understand what virtuous behavior was apart from non-virtuous behavior. So that rings true here. Now, uh, I mentioned uh, during our meditation that this chapter was, I think, one of the most difficult for me so far to wrap my head around. Um, it's, it's a bit complicated, and um, I'm going to do my best to work with it. There's a couple topics that are hard to explain, but one of them that I thought was interesting, they're talking about judgment in here, and they're talking about judging others, and but they're not really going to the detail of uh, of who's being judged and by what by what circumstances are we are we looking at others from the eyes of dharma is judgment here having more to do with social conditions and social justice uh you know the uh, right and wrong when it comes to the laws of uh, of the time and country they, they kind of leave it open like that. Other than this one line in Gil Fransdale, where it says one is called the guardian of the Dharma, uh, who, is, who is intelligent and just. So, um, you know, generally as monastics and things, we really don't get in a position of judging others. Um, so I, I, I'll just leave that open. I'm not quite sure what to make of the whole conversation here on judging, but clearly, uh, in this first verse, they're talking about the importance of knowing the difference between right and wrong. Uh, I, I've had a, uh, quite a few people coming from the Vedanta school or the Nandul school that, that move away from where well, there really isn't such a thing as right or wrong, their conceptual constructs. We're going to talk about that today. But nevertheless, to the Buddha, those, those conceptual constructs were very important. Though conventionally true, they're very important to the Buddha. Uh, the Buddha, you know, within all of our vows, within our uh, our training, uh, they're there to clearly uh, exemplify what is to be cultivated, what is to be abandoned. Uh, and of course, the one line that keeps repeating throughout the Dharmapada, do only good, do no evil, purify the mind. This was so important to the Buddha, yeah? Okay, let's move on to the next ones. Darcy, would you like to read 158 and 159? Though someone may be silver-tongued, one cannot call such a person wise. The one who is patient, free from anger and fearless, this one is called wise. Though someone may be silver-tongued, this does not mean he grasps the Dharma. Those devoted to the Dharma, never unaware of the Dharma, embody the Dharma. Though they may be, though they may have little learning. Thank you, Susan. One fifty-eight and one fifty-nine. One is not wise because one speaks much. He who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless is called wise. A man is not versed in dhamma because he speaks much. He who, after hearing a little dhamma, realizes its truth directly, and is not heedless of it, is truly first versed in the Dhamma. Thank you. And Neil, 158 and 159. One is not wise only because one speaks a lot. One who is peaceful without hate and fearless is said to be wise. One does not uphold the Dharma only because one speaks a lot. Having heard even a little, if one perceives the Dharma with one's own body and is never negligent of the Dharma, then one is indeed an upholder of the Dharma. Yeah, I'd really like these verses. So the idea is that no matter how articulate, attractive, or charismatic somebody might be, it doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. There's so many examples of that in... Uh, on on youtube right you, you uh, there's so many people that with all with the right intentions i think most of the time you know they really want to spread the dharma and help people and some of them are just great speakers 
but you can tell that um, you know they they don't have a really deep connection with the Dharma. Um, one of the most important words in this comes from Buddha Rakitas when he talks about uh, those that realize the truth directly. This is a this is the a big deal when it comes to understanding the Buddhist teachings. We can read some books and go to classes and memorize all kinds of vocabulary and become quite articulate. And, but that's a conceptual understanding of the of Buddhism. To most Buddhists, they would say that that's that's not real real Buddhist wisdom. Real Buddhist wisdom is the direct experience of it. How do you explain that? It's that aha moment. You know, you've studied all this stuff, and then in a real life situation, it hits you, and you go, "Oh, it means this, right?" That the direct experience where you feel it in your bones. This is the true understanding of Dharma. So uh, that's what they're talking about here. The other thing that this brought to mind for me was. Um, was Alan Watts. So probably many of you are familiar with Alan Watts. Incredible speaker, right? He's so, I mean, his videos and, and audios are just captivating. And he teaches from the Zen perspective. Um, and probably one of the great, great speakers and great, many we consider the great teachers early on, he was bringing Buddhism to the to the West very early on the 70s. But the fact is, when you get to know him a little better, he would say some things that were very strange. Like, he didn't say he was a Buddhist, and he didn't say he was a teacher. He claimed he was an entertainer. And I'm not quite sure what that means. I'll, I'll leave that up to you to decide what, but that's a strange thing to, for, a, for someone to say. And then the other fact is that uh, from the little I know about uh, Alan uh, is that uh, he didn't see, well, I think he says it himself, that he doesn't live the Dharma. I mean, he, he teaches Buddhism and everything, but that is definitely not his lifestyle. I guess he was quite a rowdy kind of guy. He liked drinking and liked women. And um, so this is a great example of someone who's incredibly articulate, silver-tongued, boy, so captivating. But nevertheless, it doesn't necessarily mean that they, they really have experiences or they live it. Or, and I think I'm the perfect opposite of example where I can barely spit out all this stuff at my teachings. But I really, I really believe that I, I live the teachings. You know, I, I have a strong meditation practice. I've had direct experience of the teachings. I've had a very good education, 10 years at one of the top uh, Tibetan monasteries in the world, uh, you know, uh, ordained with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So I'm in good shape there. But uh, I always wish that I had, I could be one of those amazing articulate teachers. I don't... Yeah, it's very hard for me. I always have to work hard to, to be able to spit it out and just slip some big words in here and there. Anyways, I, I thought that was funny. Let's move on. And uh, Darcy, would you like to read 160 and 161? One is not an elder because the head is gray. Many are ripe in years, but called elder for nothing. The one embodying truth and dharma, harmlessness, restraint, and commitment, who is steadfast and undefiled, this one is called an elder. Thank you. Is that? Yeah, that's 61 and 62. Thank you. And Susan, 61 and 62. One in whom there is truthfulness, virtue, inoffensiveness, restraint, and self-mastery, who is free from defilements and is wise, he is truly called an elder. Not by mere chance or by beauty of form does a man become accomplished if he is jealous, selfish, and deceitful. Thank you. I'm just marveling at the difference in translation. It's almost like they're not even reading the same text. I think I made a mistake on yours. We were, I think we were supposed to read 160, 161. Uh, let, me, let me help. A monk is not an elder because he has gray hair. He is but ripe in age, and he is called one 
grown old in vain, one in whom there is truthfulness, virtue, inoffensiveness, restraint and self-mastery, who is free from defilements and is wise. He is truly called an elder. Sorry, Susan, that was my fault. And Neil, would you like to start? It starts on the top page and comes down. Gray hair does not make one an elder. Someone ripe only in years is called an old fool. <laughs> it's through truth, dharma, harmlessness, restraint and self-control that the wise one, purged of impurities, is called an elder. Here's an, another example of the wonderful compassion that we find in the Dharmapada. Um, someone who's right, so someone who doesn't know the Dharma, but they're high in years are just called old fools. I think not, I think that people that don't know the Dharma, we can't say that they're fools. It's terrible. And uh, so, um, and yeah, and I'm proof of this one too. I'm pretty gray on top, <laughs> but I have a pretty good education. It's through truth, dharma, harmlessness, restraint, and self-control that as one is purged of impurities, as one is called an elder. I don't think I have much commentary on those. Darcy, would you like to read 162 and 163? Though someone's face and form are handsome and his words flow easily, do not consider him a man of distinction if he is jealous, mean, and brutish. Those who have destroyed these traits, uprooted them and throw them out, they are faultless and wise. These are the ones of distinction. Yes, very nice. Okay, let's get it right for Susan. 162 and 163. Not by mere eloquence, nor by beauty of form, does a man become accomplished if he is jealous, selfish, and deceitful. But he in whom these are wholly destroyed, uprooted, and extinct, and who has cast out hatred, that wise man is truly accomplished. Thank you. And Neil, 162, 163. Not through talk alone, or by good looks, does someone envious, stingy, and treacherous become a person of good character. But with these cut off, uprooted and destroyed, a person wise and purged of fault is called of good character. Thank you. And of course, I'm a great example of this. Though I'm just so handsome, you know, I have all these beautiful good looks. I also have a good education. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, when I read this, I was, uh, it, it, I flashed back to one of the monasteries that was near my monastery in, in South India. And I went to Sarajaya Monastery, Giluk Monastery, the Nyingma Monastery next door, about an hour walk away. Uh, one of the, what was it called? Nemdro Ling. One of the, I think it's the biggest uh, Nyingma and most, uh, most impressive monastery in the world. Um, uh, anyways, their education system was a little different. The Gillig system was similar to the West. You know, you do your, you do your classes, you pass your exams, you go through and you graduate, you become a Geshe. But the, uh, the Nyingma school I was impressed with because they would do the same thing, but that we wouldn't end at that. In addition, you had to actually have the qualities of an awakened person. Or, 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 or something there with it, right? And I thought that that was real wisdom, that uh, it's not just that you've, you've memorized the material, that you've passed your exams, but there has to be a sign of those characteristics in yourself. Uh, and, and of course, they're, they're listing them all throughout these various verses, right? These, uh, you know, uh, uprooting, Enviness, stingy, treacherousness, and things like that. And believe it or not, in a monastery with all those monks, there's a lot of people with, there's a lot of monks with bad character. And so um, that rang true to me. And I think in SBT, we feel the same way. But really, what really uh, distinguishes a great practitioner 
are the awakened qualities that they possess and share. If you, in other words, if you want to show off to others, don't show off what you know. Show off who you are. Show off your being, your peace, your calmness, your care, yeah, your humility. Or that, that's what people tell me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, Darcy, would you like to read 164 and 165? Not just by shaving his head does the false and intemperate man become a monk. Haha. Oh. How can one be absorbed in <laughs> desire and gain and be one who cultivates virtue? A monk is called a man of peace, one who cultivates virtue because he quiets all wrongdoing, both gross and subtle. Oh, this stuff's getting personal now. Susan, would you like to read 164 and 165? 264 and 265? Not by shaven head does a man who is in, indisciplined and untruthful become a monk. How can he who is full of desire and greed be a monk? He who totally subdues both evil and Evil, both small and great, is called a monk because he has overcome all evil. Beautifully said. Neil, would you like to read 164, 165 in here? Not by means of a shaven head does someone dishonest and undisciplined become a renunciant. How could someone filled with longing and greed be a renunciant? Someone who has pacified evil, small and great, in every way, is, for that reason, called a renunciant. Oh, thank you. Yeah, these are hitting close to home. So uh, in the monastery, Tibetan monasteries, you know, in Tibet, the monastery is the center of town, as it is in most uh, cultures. Um, but um, for anyone, if you have any ambitions of any kind, you have to become a monk. The monks there are the scholars and doctors and and leaders and uh, philosophers and teachers and just you know you're if you're not a shopkeeper or you're not a farmer or a yak herder, you're a monk. And so uh, because of that, as you can imagine, People become monks for many different reasons. In a monastery, there are many, many monks that you know just have no interest in religion of any kind or spiritual growth. A lot of them just know they need the title monk to do the other things they want to do. And so uh, in a large monastery full of, uh, of uh, my monastery was 5,000 monks, you'd really be surprised how many people you may consider to be a, a real monk, right? And that becomes a thing in the monastery. Monks are aware of that, and they they often will single out monks, and they'll say, here, this guy's the genuine thing. This guy's a real monk, because even the monks know that. And so um, this, is, uh, this is something that's very, this verse is very understood in the Buddhist world. And it's the same thing with... Uh, getting donations. There's many monks um, who are could be fake monks, they're not monks at all, but dressed like it, or they're monks that just don't really care about their the Dharma. They're just there to make money, and they go around and they, they uh, get donations of cash and those kind of things. So this is an, an important verse. And how about uh, Darcy reading... 266 and 267. One is not a monk just because one asks for alms. Completely taking up the Dharma is what makes one a monk. Whoever has gone beyond good and evil, but acts with perfect purity while passing through the world, such a one is called a monk. Thank you. Susan, 166 and 266 and 267. He is not a monk just because he lives on others' alms. Not by adopting outward form does one become a true monk. Whoever here in the dispensation lives a holy life transcending both merit and demerit and walks with understanding in this world, he is truly called a monk. Thank you. You read that beautifully. And Neil, 260, well, we're up here, split page here for you, Neil. You're muted now. Oh, I think 
266 and 267. I think you start up here. Oh, we start up here. I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. One is not a mendicant just because one begs from others, nor does one become a mendicant by taking on domestic ways. But whoever sets aside both merit and evil lives a chastised life and goes through the world deliberately is called a mendicant. Thank you. Uh, so the word mendicant is sometimes used for monk. It means someone who has... Um, Oh, I knew I'd forget black out on this word. Um, who has uh, given up life and oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It'll ascetic. come to me. Ascetic. Yeah, it's an ascetic, a renunciant. The word I was looking for was ascetic, maybe a better word, but uh, it's often used for the idea of a, a monk. Um, so uh, I think I'd like to look at this one. So in this, it says, it says that, again, you know, looking like a monk, going out and taking alms, that's not what makes you a monk. It's your commitment to the Dharma. That's what makes a true monk. Your commitment to your training, to your practice, to the, to the qualities of Buddhism and your practice. Now, here's an interesting uh, line. Whoever has gone, be, gone beyond good and evil, but acts purely while pass, passing through the world, such as called a monk. What does it mean now to go beyond good and evil, but act purely? In Buddha Rakitas, he uses the word to go to transcend merit and demerit. And in Gil Fransdale, I'm not sure he mentions it. He says merit, oh, merit and evil. Okay, so this is a little bit of a complicated thing I wanted to share with you. Um, so there's two principles at work here. Um, that uh, clearly discerning right and wrong is, is dear to the Buddha and something that he takes very seriously. But there's, there's another thing between discerning what's right and wrong and transcending good and evil or merit and demerit. It's easy to just say good and bad karma. Now, although both are produced by the mind, um, meaning that we talked about in the meaning of life, we talked about that only minds have consciousness and therefore only minds can discern things like good and evil, right and wrong, um, <clears throat> purpose and, and functionality, things like that. So right and wrong doesn't exist in the natural world. They're distinctions that human beings make. Excuse me. Um, and because of that, they're considered conventional truths, right? They're subjective. Rights and wrongs are different depending on different cultures, different communities. And, um, and they're based on uh, conditions and circumstances. Um, but so right and wrongs are, are always there, but the idea of good and bad karma is a little bit different. Now, good and bad karma is also produced by the mind. And, but the thing about good and bad karma is we talked about how karma is created. Karma is the residue that's left over from our intentions, our speech and our actions. Um, and it's a mental and emotional residue. In short, karma is related to how we feel about the things we do. And this is strongly emotional, but also just, but also mental. So karma is the, is, is how we feel about the thing we've, we've done. So if you've done something not so nice, you feel guilty about it afterwards, that colors your life going forward. This is how karma works. However, and, and though you can acknowledge that this idea of good and bad are conventional truths, and so they do exist in the world, and they, they, they in, in, for all intended purposes, they are real. They're conceptual, but they're real. You know, we, they're real because they can, they can change people's lives. 
and we all agree upon the, them, though we might not have the exact same uh, rights and wrongs or good or bads, generally human beings in all cultures have around the same basic idea of, uh, of these. But with karma, it's a little bit different. If you, when you understand how karma works and you practice yourself to purify them, you can start to liberate yourself from the emotional and mental <clears throat> uh, residue. You can, you, by understanding how it works, you can stop accumulating the karma. You can, you can stop feeling uh, certain ways of, of the, the, uh, uh, upon your actions. And this comes about twofold. One of them is, is that through your vows, when you start to act so purely and you're habituated yourself to your vows and proper behavior, you simply don't have to think very much about acting properly, about generating good karma. And you simply don't get in, you, you just stop producing bad karma because you don't act in that way. Um, and as you, as you understand the mechanism, you can literally transcend it because you realize that karma is being made by yourself through your own mind. If you can control the reaction process, if you can control the emotions you feel, if you can rationalize things that you did that maybe you, you wish you did differently and realize, well, those are just habits and patterns that I'm following. They're not necessarily my true intention. Then, as you can imagine, you can start to transcend karma. Now, it sounds a little bit aloof, but actually, you're probably doing it right now. You're probably you're probably lessening how the, the the effects of karma in your life because of your vows, because of your practice, right? As we understand how all of this works, you simply start to feel less about that, and you can notice it first in the amount of guilt and blame that you have. I think all practitioners get to a point they start realizing that. They don't feel these feelings so strongly like they did before they started practicing, right? That idea of, of guilt, regret, shame, they're just not so visceral anymore, right? This is this mechanism. And as you get going, uh, you can, again, transcend more and more of that. Now, at the ultimate level, there's a bit of a controversy. There's two schools of thought. One school of thought says a Buddha or a great bodhisattva, supreme bodhisattva, I'm sorry, superior bodhisattva or a Buddha have gotten so purified that they no longer produce good or bad karma. They're beyond the realm of karma. The other school of thought says, no, they still produce them, but it's a different type of karma than we're used to. And I think that they, what they mean by is a very subtle form of good and bad karma, right? And so, let's say the Buddha, an amazing being, he does something good for another. Does he feel that swell of goodness and, and, and happiness from the act? Or is he so clear about cause and effect and the way events work that he realizes that, that there, there wasn't anything to it? They call it the emptiness of the gift, the giver, and the receiver. When you realize the, the mechanism of all of them working together, you realize that, that at, at some level that there's this, this idea of, of emptiness. I told you this was a tough topic to explain, but maybe today I'm just going to give you a little bit of an insight into it. So the idea is that we can transcend good and bad karma to some extent, but the idea of discerning right and wrong isn't, is never transcended. Even the highest of practitioners knows very clear in his mind what is cultivated and what is abandoned, what is good, be what is virtuous and what is not virtuous, what is skillful and what is unskillful, what is productive and what is unproductive. How's that? Pretty good. <laughs> okay. Will Darcy, you have a question? Yeah. Will we be uh, diving <clears throat> deeper into this at some point? Yes, um, in, our, I, in our. I'd like to continue this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, we'll talk about this in our uh, in our series, our program coming up, maybe over the summer, which is going to be called uh, Secular Buddhist Essentials. Ah, wonderful. Thank you. But yeah, that's deep dive stuff. So, <clears throat> but I I hope I wet everybody's whistle and you're excited about that. Um, <clears throat> and uh, let's let's uh, Darcy, would you like to read one six uh, two sixty eight and two sixty nine? The ignorant person who behaves like a fool does not become a Muni just because Muni Muni just by keeping quiet. The sage is one who weighs both sides and embraces what is best. And the, the last one, one here. Yep. The one who rejects all wrongdoing <clears throat> becomes a sage by weighing both sides of the world. This one is called a Muni. Muni. <laughs> Moonies are also, there's a the religious sector called the Moonies. Yeah, I think they're Hindu, aren't they? The Moonies. Here Isn't it means. Alt? Yeah, here it means, it means short for Shakyamuni, the Buddha's name. Oh. You're never going to be a Muni with that kind of reading skills. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just teasing. Uh, 168, 169. Um, <clears throat> Susan, would you like to read this? 168 and 169. Oh, 268 and 269. I don't know why I keep doing that. Not by observing silence does one become a sage, if he be foolish and ignorant. But that man who is wise, who is of holding a balance, as if holding a balance scale, accepts only the good. The sage, thus rejecting the evil, is truly a sage, since he comprehends both present and future worlds. He is called a sage. Thank you. Lovely. Oh, I don't know where this writing's coming from. <clears throat> oh, Neil, would you like to read 268 and 269? Not by silence. Does an ignorant fool become a sage? The wise person who, as if holding a set of scales, selects what's good and avoids what's evil is for that reason a sage whoever can weigh these two sides of a world is for that reason called a sage thank you again it highlights the importance of discerning right and wrong right and so when people say the uh, the buddha taught uh, non-duality i would say no it's not true the buddha is quite a dualist he's very clear about that there is transcendence, but he's quite the dualist. And I think that uh, I think that that's very clear for everyone. Neil, would, uh, I'm sorry, Darcy, would you like to read 270 and 271? One does not become a hero by killing. A truly heroic person never harms a living creature. I obtain the happiness free from action, which no ordinary being can know, not just by spiritual practice, not just by great learning. Thank you. I think we'll take these one by one. Susan, would you like to read 270? He is not noble who injures living beings. He is called noble because he is harmless towards all living beings. Thank you. Neil, would you like to read 270? You're muted. Not by harming living beings is one a noble one. By being harmless to all living beings is one called a noble one. Here I just think it's beautiful, the idea of harmlessness. Um, I always thought that the, the idea of gentleness isn't shared enough throughout the Buddhist teachings. It's there in the sutras. They talk about it. I think as Buddhist practitioners, gentleness should be a quality that we all aspire to. It's a beautiful quality. Whether we want to call it harmlessness or patient, gentleness is lovely. Thank you. Darcy, would you like to read 271 again? You're muted. <laughs> it's not I me. Obtain, I have, it's me. 
I obtain the happiness free from action, which no ordinary being can know, not just by spiritual practice, not just by great learning. Thank you. Susan, 271. Um, and you might as well read, well, I guess they're connected. So Darcy, please keep reading 272 here. Not just by sleeping in solitude or even by obtaining samadhi. Oh, monks, do not rest easy until you have destroyed the defilements. Thank you. Sorry about the confusion. And Susan, 271, 272. Not by rules and observances, not even by much learning, nor by gain of absorption, nor by a life of seclusion, nor by thinking I enjoy the bliss of renunciation, which is not experienced by the worldling. Should you, O monks, rest content until the utter destruction of cankers, arahatship is reached. Lovely. And Neil, this is the last one here, 271, 272. Not with virtue or religious practice, great learning, attaining samadhi, dwelling alone, or thinking, I touch for happiness, of a renunciant unknown <clears throat> by ordinary people, should you, monk, rest assured without destroying, <clears throat> sorry, without having destroyed the toxins. Thank you. I think uh, Gil Fransdale's verse here is really nice. And so, yeah, I think we can all can get kind of caught up in this, right? Like, uh, you know, not with virtual religious practice that we dress up with beads and robes and all of those stuff. Um, or some people are great academics in Buddhism. Others are great meditators and they've reached samadhi or high levels of meditation. Um, or some are just really proud of their renunciation, um, that, uh, you know, they're proud that I live all by myself in this house over here, and, and they're, they think they're great practitioners because of this. Or, or maybe just simple people like us that uh, are gaining happiness, and we're thinking, oh, great, I've gotten, I've attained something from my practice. I'm okay. That's enough. But the Buddha says, do not rest assured. Don't stop until you've destroyed all of your afflictions. Don't stop until you've become a Buddha. <laughs> so it's up to you. You can tell the Buddha to mind his own business, or you could take his advice. I think it's perfectly fine to use the Dharma to reach whatever goals you, you've uh, set for yourself. Yeah, but... um. Yeah, I think it's so true. So a lot of this uh, chapter felt like it really hit home as a monk. You know, a lot of it is like, don't be a fake monk. <laughs> They'll owe you a big shot. You got an international Dharma group with a big name, secular Buddhist, uh, secular Buddhist tradition, and you're doing teachings and you're writing stuff and doing all this. Don't think you're something. You haven't reached enlightenment yet. Find some humility, you arrogant, just because you speak well and you're handsome and <laughs> you're not fooling anybody, the Buddha says. That's right. That's that's you, Tenzin Tarpa. That's who I'm talking about. You're not fooling anybody. You got work to do. Don't give it up. <clears throat> it was a fun it was a fun chapter though, I thought. Yeah. Anybody have any views? Anybody have any questions, comments, or insights into our topic? I'll take this off temporarily. What did you guys think of this uh, chapter? Seemed important, right? A lot of it was just don't be a fakey, right? Yeah. A lot of it was... Walk the walk. No, yeah, walk yeah, well path. said. Yeah. Walk the walk and don't fake it. A little bit of a cautionary tale, too, that, you know, watch out for, for these people that are really articulate and handsome and they think they know everything. Just, you know, be discerning and make sure that they actually know what they're talking about. And when they talk about monks in all these cases, I think it's easy just to say, great practitioners or practitioners. I think the same thing is true for all of you. You know, nowadays we have so many lay teachers on YouTube and stuff. 
it's it's not just monks it's it's everybody but i think with a monk it's a big deal because you're dressed up in a big red outfit with a shaved head and you know and so the buddha is urging us to be authentic and i, I truly hope that i'm uh, i fit in that category that's always my my aim my ambition to be an authentic monk it, it reassured, yeah, it reassured me a lot when you were talking about, you know, you can be the person that can remember and memorize everything and be able to say it, which that's an, a problem for me to memorize things and to remember and to have it come out my mouth sounding like something articulate is really not my forte. You know, I can't, that's not, a, I'm not good at it, obviously, but um, to just be able to be genuine with the way I feel or act towards people is is good because yeah. uh, I can't I can't fake it <laughs> I can't fake the other stuff <laughs> you know and I feel the exact same way uh, myself I'm a new teacher SBT is a new organization and um, I think it's easy to start to compare oneself with the other people and you know there's so many great Buddhist teachers who just have amazing minds. They can remember every detail and quote every scripture. And I'm I'm with you. That that isn't one of my my graces. You know, I I think I was a mediocre student. I think I'm a mediocre uh, student, mediocre meditator. But I think I'm a, a good monk. I, I'm definitely not mediocre. And and so yeah, now that you say it, uh, it was. It was uh, a lot of things in there that uh, were reassuring, weren't there? That you don't necessarily need to do those things. You just need to, it's your commitment to the Dharma and that you're, you're working with it and you're practicing it. And it's these qualities that, that were uh, transcending that make us great practitioners. It's not that, you know, we can't talk like Alan Watts. Because, boy, you listen to that, and you're like, I'll never be able to speak like that. But then the fact is, well, Alan Watts may, apparently didn't have it, was the opposite. He didn't have any of those qualities, right? He was just the, just a, a speaker. So, uh, yeah, yeah, now that you mentioned, it's quite reassuring, isn't it? That even us can do, <laughs> right? Even us. Yeah. Uh, Eddie, please. Hey, um. The, the part with um, where it's kind of talking about transcending the good karma and bad karma and the and after that acting with purity, um, is that kind of how I kind of thought about like how Bodhisattva just reacts to, you know, kind of purely and they, they don't, they don't think like, oh, is this going to generate good karma or is this action going to be bad karma? They just react to be compassionate. Does that make sense? That's exactly that kind of, right. Is that what it is that what it was getting at, kind of? Well, this is from the Theravada tradition, so this was written, you know, hundreds of years before that. But but the same idea applies, except for the fact that this is saying at the same time, well, you're not learning, you're not losing the discernment between what creates good karma and bad. That discernment stays there. But you're right about the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva has has trained and habituated proper behavior, and they can operate purely. And again, they don't have to think so much about it. You know, they, they really understand what it is. And then by <clears throat> understanding and being able to control the mechanism of karma on how that karma comes in and is created, they can transcend that. Well said. You know, the uh, there's some great Mahayana sutras. There was one the golden sutra of a thousand lines or something and um and the whole thing is a paradox i aspire for buddhahood i don't aspire for buddhahood i aspire for enlightenment i don't inspire for enlightenment i love my mother and father i don't love my mother and father and it's just a thousand lines of opposites and you think to yourself is this a madman who is who's written this right but at some point when you start reading through these this list of paradoxes all of a sudden you start to get the feeling for the middle that oh i can aspire for uh, i can aspire for uh, awakening and yet not not aspire 
too strongly, right? Like that can be the idea that I'm going towards, but doesn't have to have the regular kind of ambition that we normally have. So again, it's kind of working between those. Ah, I don't know if that's helpful. Thanks, Eddie. Good question. Sangpo or Sangmo? So <clears throat> I try to avoid being judgmental when I think about this. I'm just trying to see it as an observation. Um, <laughs> and I try to avoid politics. So I'm, I'm not bringing politics into this. But we have a home secretary who um, basically took her oath of office on the Dharma Pada. But everything she does and says whilst in government is the total opposite to Buddhism. One prime example being sending refugees to Rwanda and, you know, what that would put, what puts, puts those folk through, you know, in that whole process. That's just one example. I could go into many, which are all the opposite to what Buddhism should be and what we talk about. And, and that's where I find it's for her, you know, to, to look at her own practice and, you know, understand how she justifies it. But um, I just find what we're talking about now, that just came into my head even more so. Um, Perfect example. She she lied about all the things she came into office with, right? When I was in Scotland, my friends told me all about all the things that she did wrong. But yeah, truthfulness, right? That's the most important of the Buddhist qualities, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, she, she stood for conservative leader. And she said, uh, I think it was like one of our dreams was to see the flights lift off to Rwanda. So, I mean... You know that in itself just lacks complete compassion, and you know as a as a home, I mean as a home secretary they have you know there's a difficult job I get that you know, um you know the you know, the, the the power and the responsibility of that power and the decision will always have dilemmas like any yeah. you know you know um, the same for your homeland secretary or your you know your president you know prime ministers they all have those yeah. difficult. And we know that there's regimes that are Buddhist. Yep. The the Buddhist religion is behind them that we would question their attitude towards you know the Muslims or towards you know. So we we know there's, there's <clears throat> dynamic, but I don't I don't know. It's just that it's a contradiction that is actually at home. It's only because I'm on reading that I picked up on this. Um, it's just one that you know for for me stands out when we're talking about this. The con you know somehow sometimes the contradictions. That's yeah. right. She's a perfect example of, of just that. And you're also right about in the world, there's a lot of Buddhists that don't behave so well. Yeah, the problems in Myanmar, problems in Sri Lanka, they've had the same for a long time. And yeah, thank you. That's something I've wondered about. The, um, almost all of the uh, Buddhist countries have got really not very good leadership. Pretty oppressive. Um, it's true. <laughs> you know, I thought, how did that happen? I mean, and then some, right, but all the rest of them are not. Yeah, and, and other things like in it's, some Buddhist countries, ethically, they're not very good, like Thailand. You know, socially, they're, they have real problems with ethics in that country, you know, the prostitution and things when you yeah. go there, you know. And uh, so it's true. Yeah, and it's uh, I, I don't have an answer for it. Some countries, some Buddhist countries seem to be better with it than others, but it's true. Yeah, that'll be another another debate on another day. <laughs> I think uh, if there's no other comments or questions, I'm going to sum up. Scott, did you have something you wanted to share? I saw your arm halfway up. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, thanks everybody for your thoughts. So uh, we're we're getting close to our hour, so I just wanted to kind of uh, chime in. So I always like to just add a couple of conclusions to this, kind of my interpretation of some of the verses. Um, so remember, these are my interpretations of the Dharma Pada. They're not my own views. Um, one is not one is not just if they judge a case hastily. A wise person carefully considers what is and isn't right, gu guiding others without force, impartiality, or in accordance with the Dharma, and in accordance with the Dharma, I apologize. One is called a guardian of the Dharma, uh, if they are intelligent and just. 
Regardless of how articulate, attractive, or charismatic some teachers may be, what's most important are the subtle, subtler qualities of peacefulness, kindness, and wisdom. Regardless of how articulate, attractive, or charismatic some teachers may be, this doesn't mean they understand the Buddha Dharma. Conversely, those who are true, who truly embody their practice and training, developing a direct realization of the teachings, can be considered great practitioners, although not necessarily possessing an extensive education. It's not the amount of years one has practiced, but instead it's one's enlightened qualities that truly defines a great practitioner. The qualities of gentleness, restraint, virtue, and wisdom. I wanted to add a, a thing about this. <clears throat> I have some friends in some traditions and countries who will remain nameless, and that's all they talk about. I'm studying from this monk. He's been a monk for 50 years. It's like a numbers game. A monk is great by the number of years. And, uh, and my friend, he just, every time he mentions a monk, he has to tell you how many years they've been a monastic. But it was funny, when I was a musician, we always knew that somebody was a bad musician if they told you how many years they've been playing. Because the number of years are, relevant, are irrelevant. You know, they'd say, oh, I've been a drummer for 25 years. And, but it's, you know, well, how much did you practice in 25 years? And how much natural talent is there? How much training have you had? So when somebody, when musicians talked about how long they've been playing, you always knew they weren't very good. And um, I remember, I think it was Ozzy Osbourne's guitarist, Randy Rhodes, he blew the world away because he had just been playing guitar for a very short time before he joined Ozzy. Like he was a he was one of those people who dug in, who worked really hard. And for uh, especially for Westerners that uh, come into Buddhism, a lot of them, a lot of us, like myself, uh, found Buddhism late in life. But our passion, I think, makes up for the years. So um, I've seen so many Western monks who have only been monks for 10 or 20 years, but their their understanding of the Dharma was extraordinary. Where in a lot of traditional countries, they're brought in as children, and because it's kind of the status quo, they're not very passionate about it. And some of them, though they might have been monks for, for 50 years, might know very little about the Dharma or or have been good practitioners. Just wanted to share that. It's those who have purified their minds of afflictions and ignorance that we call accomplished. We don't become Buddhist practitioners by simply adorning ourselves with beads and robes. We become authentic practitioners through purifying our minds. It's our commitment to the Buddha Dharma that distinguishes us as authentic practitioners. Great practitioners can transcend the distinction of good karma and bad karma and act with naturally perfect behavior, although still discerning what is skillful and what is unskillful, what is right and what is wrong. And lastly, while attaining some success on the path or gaining notoriety, privilege, or position, we should not stop until we have transcended all of our afflictions and reached full awakening. I'd like everybody to remember that the sutra teachings are meant as practice instructions. So in order to get the greatest benefit, we need to engage fully with them, utilizing the three great objectives of study, contemplation, and meditation. Your work this week is to discover how these teachings apply to your daily life transforming them from words on a page into a living dharma next week we'll be moving on to chapter 20 of the dhammapada the path so with that said let's end today's meditation or end today's class with our altruistic affirmation may all be healthy may all be prosperous may all be well may all be present free of past regret and future worry May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Remember that the SPT community was created for one purpose only, to support you, the practitioner.
And remember, we have daily meditations every day at 20, uh, at, at 20 UTC time. And it's open to all. We'd love to see you there. Thanks for coming, everybody. Great to see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, thank thank you. you readers. Thank you. Thank you, Tarpa. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. 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 Great class. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.